Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to learn about commercial property investing and join our real estate family. We get the best people in the industry to give you straightforward and practical advice that you can actually use in your investing. And in this episode, we are covering what do you do when you're the second largest office holder in Los Angeles and there is a year and a half to possibly two year lockdown in your asset class. We're also reviewing how to find and add value to properties in today's market. We are chatting with Christopher Rising, co-founder of Rising Realty Partners, a real estate investment firm that has 5 million square feet of assets under management that are worth $1.5 billion. Here we go. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm super, super excited to have you here because um, Broker actually recognized my voice when I called him about a property and uh, he said he loves my podcast. And then he said that there's just one more person's podcast that he also loves and that is yours. And I wow. thought <laughs> it would be a great idea to have you on the show. So thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm sure I probably paid somebody to say that to you, but I appreciate it. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Sure. So yeah, my name is Chris Rising and I'm a co-founder of Rising Realty Partners. It's, it's a company I founded with my father in 2011. And we've grown it from really just an idea of let's go buy a building. And then we bought our first building. We've now grown it to about 5 million square feet. We are in four asset classes. We're in office, we're in data, and we're multifamily, and we're in industrial. We've grown from really two people and an analyst to now we're about 45 people. We're vertically integrated, and we are in Denver. We are in, as of Monday, we'll be in Houston, and then uh, Las Vegas, and then we're out throughout Southern California. I think, I, I think this that is right. I think we're the second largest owner of office in downtown Los Angeles. Which sounds great if we hadn't gone through two years of this pandemic. So <laughs> it's exactly. made that a little difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Just like any entrepreneurs and uh, real estate investors, we all deal with whatever comes our way, right? That is just part of the journey. And it's great to hear that from someone like you that has such a huge footprint. <laughs> well, actually, I, I'm reminded of something my father often says, and he's now 80. He said, you know, I've been around long enough through all these real estate cycles to hear people say that everything's changed and it's nothing bad is going to happen again in the cycles. And he says, I've been around long enough to hear that said again and again <laughs> and again and again. So he's, he's been uh, in real estate since the early seventies. So he's seen a lot of recessions and a lot of reasons why real estate slows down. And I think it's just the nature, it's human nature because real estate is so tied to human nature. But I will tell you, this is, uh, I, I, I never thought that I would look at a performa of an office building and look at the parking revenue and go, you know, I really have to prepare for that pandemic where <laughs> nobody's going to drive and pay for parking for two years. Oh my gosh. I don't know anybody who could have done that. So I think all of us who own office in major cities, at least in cities that have been uh, uh, more shut down, have been feeling this pain. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to talk about it, I would love to hear how you guys dealt with that because that's well, part yeah, of the I, I, 
you know, for better or for worse, our social policy was to absolutely change our system and not allow for evictions. And whether it's residential or whether it's commercial, the system is set up that when a tenant is in default for not paying rent, one of the things that we can do to lower our damages is to have the tenant leave and then try to release the project. But when the county and the state and the federal government pass rules trying to protect people, they're making a choice. They're choosing tenants over landlords and such. And one of the things I learned in all this is, is that there's this impression that every landlord has deep, deep pockets and we're just, you know, we'll take the brunt of it. But that's yeah. not how it works. You know, we run a business that has to sign loan commitments, that has investors and have fiduciaries. When we call rising a family business, it's not because this family's owned assets for a hundred years and we just can we can take two years without getting paid. And I think that's been the, the hardest thing. So what did we do from day one? We did try to work with our tenants. And you know, the first thing when someone came to us or someone chose not to pay the rent, we would say is, well, give us your financials. Let's be a partner here. Let us see. You kind of smoke some people out when you do that because <laughs> can't tell you how many law firms felt like uh, a lease was uh, a, a one-sided obligation and they didn't have to pay if they didn't want to. <laughs> they, uh, but that's not true. And so we'd start with the, you know, hey, show us the books. Then we went to, have you applied for a PPP loan? Because those were specifically designed to pay salaries and to pay rent. And then if they didn't do that, we'd say, have you gone to business insurance? But we kind of knew that that would, business insurance wasn't fronting any of this. But if someone worked and tried to solve a problem, we, we worked with them. And in fact, I would say that every one of our retail tenants in our office building, I think to a T, we are working out deals with them now because most, most of them haven't paid rent in two years so that we can keep them. But they also need to do things like extend their term or something. We're not trying to be punitive and say, you know, you owe us late rent. We're just trying to almost close our eyes and pretend the last two years didn't happen. We got through it. We paid our mortgages and all of that. But hey, in return, you got to give us a little, a little more term on your leases. But it still hasn't been figured out. I think on the multifamily side, there is just a lot of problems that are hidden right now because you can't evict people. You know, all you can do is serve them with a notice to pay. And I think when all of this gets lifted, you're going to see a lot of residential tenants whose credit gets really destroyed. It's one thing if you chose, if you couldn't pay rent and you worked out with your landlord. It's another thing if you chose not to pay rent. Those who chose not to, it's not a free lunch. And sure. I think that'll all work out. Anyway, it's been a challenge. I tell you that. I mean, uh, I, I look back to March of 2020 and the fear in everyone's face uh, on our Zoom calls. But I think the team stuck together well. We use technology in a way a lot of other firm, real estate firms don't. So we didn't have any problem. We already had a project management system. We use Asana and we're Google back workspace. A lot of people use Microsoft Teams. So we didn't have a problem with that. But I'll tell you, after two years, I think there is strain around. We're pretty much back in the office. But I will tell you that traditional work hours are over. Basically, what we've done is we've turned us into three day a week in the office. And you can choose your own work hours about productivity. But if there are in-person meetings scheduled, you're expected to be at the in-person meeting. And so I think it gives people flexibility on the edges. So that's how we've gotten through it is we're just trying to adapt. But I will tell you, I, from an office perspective, I think the business has fundamentally changed. The reasons offices started was people needed a place to store books and papers, and they needed a place that they couldn't do it in their home. So they went to an office. 
Well, we all know that that's all change. You don't go in an office to get work done. You go to an office to collaborate. And I think you're going to see the footprints change, not necessarily get smaller, but I think some will get smaller, but some will get bigger. But how in-person interaction changes, we are never going back. Yeah. The days, you know, when I'm wearing a navy blue suit, white shirt and tie and hard sole shoes and get in by seven in the morning and leave at seven o'clock at night. I think that American society is, is long gone. But. Agree. Agree. I, I thought people were going to go back to the office a year in, but now they're just getting used to it too much. And more and more companies are adopting the flexible working from yeah. home. So it, I, I agree think, that it's changing for good. I don't think it's, it's hard to generalize. So there are just certain businesses that they figured out that, yeah, we don't need office space because that's just the nature of the business. But that's not most businesses. Right. Most businesses are mentorship based. They take an apprenticeship and those will have people come back. But I think what you'll see, and, and I just read an article in Fortune by Andy Cohen of Gensler, who was saying that their view is, is that the office space will all be around collaboration. And the idea that people are in open seating, a lot, all these workstations and things like that, that won't be it. You'll have some private offices to work in. Senior people will probably have private offices. But for most people, it'll be more of a hoteling feel, but it'll feel much more residential. You know, have areas with couches. And I also think that the way people are going to get people to come back to work is you have the best technology available because people can't afford this stuff in their home. And you make it where mm-hmm. like people just go, I just want to be in the office because <laughs> internet's faster. Yeah. I can do all these things there. I think it'll be a landlord and big employer amenity fest over the next couple of years, <laughs> trying to get people to come back to be in the office together for certain periods of time. So that makes sense. Yeah. I would love to hear about your last acquisition. How did you analyze it, find value add, and why did you end up purchasing it? Yeah, well, so we're almost done with one in Houston. I'll talk about the last one, which was in Las Vegas. We've taken our industrial strategy and really focused on something called multi-tenant light industrial. So I think when people talk about industrial today, they sometimes forget there's different forms of industrial real estate. The one that is trading at unbelievably low cap rates are the big box logistics-based industrial buildings. So you think of a big Amazon center or a distribution center or just Anybody who's moving product, those are trading at very low cap rates, very hard to buy because you have to buy them in scale. Number one, you're not really selling one-offs. It's usually portfolios, but people are really buying the cash flow stream and the quality of that credit. So that is not an area we have participated, even though my father, when he was at Catellus Development, that's what they did. We've taken a different approach and focused on this multi-tenant light industrial, a product that really isn't getting built much anymore, especially in in major CBDs. It's not getting built because it's hard to get entitled that if you're going to build something in industrial, you prefer to build the big box industrial, less cost, get more for your money. But there's a real demand that we have found in multi-tenant light industrial. JLL wrote a great report on it, and it comes down to the scarcity. There's just a lack of supply that there's been a fundamental change in business. So a lot of times companies would have an industrial or manufacturing offsite, but they always wanted to have their nice office somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly in the last couple of years, that's become less important. And what you're seeing is businesses now do their own distribution. You're seeing these 10,000 foot 
well, the buildings are like 25 to 150,000 square feet, but you're seeing these slices of these buildings in the multi-tenant where 70% of the space is warehouse with a dock high or a ground level dock. And then about 30% is office. And that's the new world we live in for a lot of Americans. And so we think it's a great diversified tenant base. We're going to markets that we think have a tremendous amount of growth, Houston with their port, North Las Vegas with the growth that's happening in Southern Nevada. We're looking at one in Northern California, we're looking at one in uh, Long Beach right now. But I think what's also interesting is that we've really become a believer in crowdfunding. And I think it's a natural evolution of the broker-dealer network stuff that has been going on for a while, and now Blackstone is the biggest player in. But for those who, who don't remember or weren't aware, about the 1980s, there was something that was called Tenant in Common, these tick syndicators. And you would go and you'd buy a building with 100 other people, and you'd each be a tenant in common. That didn't work when there were uh, reasons for capital calls and the economy change and all. So that tick world kind of blew up into this non-traded private REIT world where people would get on the broker-dealer networks of the Merrill Lynch's and the Charles Schwab's, and they'd raise money that way. And early on in the 90s and the 2000s, um, the fee load was really high for these people who were doing it. And so you'd go to your Merrill Lynch broker and be on their network and say, hey, I'd like your client to give us, I'll just keep it simple, $100. And they were taking as much as 23 of those dollars, 23% load factor on that. That when Blackstone saw and, and KBS saw and Heinz saw how much money people were raising there, they moved into that market and they did it saying, hey, we'll do it with reasonable fees. And that's happened. And Blackstone raises a huge number, 20 billion a month or something um, to go and find deals that most of them have to have cash flow. So our view is the evolution of that is what you're seeing with companies like Fundrise, Realty Mogul and CrowdStreet, which yeah. is instead of going to the broker dealer network and getting grandma and grandpa to give you 10 grand, go right to the crowd. Now we're focused on accredited investors. That's so we're not doing the, the reggae stuff. We're doing it in a deal at a time with a proven crowdfunding site. So we, we're very close with all three of the big ones and they all have their own unique characteristics, but we've had a really good run of success with, with Realty Mogul lately. And so we felt this multi-tenant light industrial strategy would really work on their platform. And we were amazed, surprised, and pleased that we did a full LP raise. We needed to raise about seven and a half million dollars of LP money. And then we put in our, on our portion of it. And we were able to raise, uh, when they put it up on their site, we raised a million and a half dollars in 24 hours, 3 million and 48, and all seven and a half in a week. (laughs) That told us a lot. We are uh, doing another raise right now, but this one, it's a bigger uh, total dollar amount and they're going to be less than 50% of the capital stack. We've brought in our own investors and we're putting our own money in. And that one has gone on their site recently. And if it's not oversubscribed, it's going to be very soon before we close. And I just think it's an appetite that people have because how does someone who perhaps has been a successful doctor or dentist and has a bunch of 401k money or but and they're like, I can go be in the bank and get 0%. I feel the stock market's overpriced. This is a chance to take, I think our minimums are 35,000. You could take $50,000 out of that, put it in a real estate deal that's going to get you a 7%, north of 7% cash on cash a year. And it's got a three to five year hold. 
Now, the downside, there is no liquidity. So if someone needed that money, they got to live with the life cycle of the deal. The other thing is we're not trying to own, we have a very specific business plan with all of this, which is to, as you said, value add, we go in, release what needs to be released, improve the property, and we're out in three years or five years, depending on what the business plan is. I think people like that because the other piece of this, when we sign up, we promise no capital calls. So Mm -hmm. those investors have, I can't say 100% of protection because deals can blow up and tenants can go away. And I would never say that. I mean, I've been in the business too long, but they're more protected than we are because as the GP, if there is a need to call capital, it comes from us. So there's a lot of positives to being an investor in crowdfunding. It's early. It's still frowned upon. I think people uh, are always afraid of, well, what if you have 150 investors? That's 150 K1s. And it is, that's very true. But by keeping it as an LLC, not a C-Corp, people get the benefit. They get a K-1. They get to take depreciation. They get to defer tax. Whereas a lot of these other sites have turned them into REITs. And there's nothing wrong with a REIT, but you're getting a distribution so you don't get any of the tax-related benefits to owning real estate. One of the things we think about multi-tenant line industrial that this is no secret, I'm happy to tell, but we think there's ways to improve up the project and bring the cap rate down on sales and compete more with the big box distribution. If you can take a project that maybe doesn't have dock high space and create a common dock. Yeah. If you can create a better parking situation, a lot of these deals we're finding is there's just dollars being left around the edges because it's not a sophisticated seller and or owner. And then right. they're selling it to reap a harvest, but they don't really know how to, op- they are professionals in operating. So we think it's a great strategy. Pleased to say on this deal, the Cheyenne deal, for those who invested, you know, we predicted that we'd be having a distribution, predicted when it would be and all that in our performa, and it's all coming to pass. So we closed on that in July and the first distribution will be November 15th, 45 days after the first quarter that we've owned the asset. So I think it's a good strategy. I think money's going to rush into it and it's going to be tough to find deals. Well, thank you for going over that. We are going to continue this interview next week with part two. If you are learning from this podcast, please make sure to write us a review. As you can see, we do our best to bring the top, top people in the industry for you guys. And high reviews help other people find this podcast. Thank you so much. And I will see you next time.